Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, your trusted resource for the latest strategies, tactics, and tips on running a high-performance sales development program. Sales development has grown to become a critical part of the success of high-growth companies, and we dive in each week on how to specifically make your program successful and accelerate your career advancement. Subscribe at iTunes, YouTube, and jump on the newsletter over at 10pound.com to make sure you never miss an episode. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I'm David Delaney, your host. Thank you so much for jumping on. Today, I'm very excited to dive in. This is a really interesting story that I'd like to share with everyone and introduce to our audience. Mary Grothy, CEO of SalesBQ. How are you doing today? Couldn't be better. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, it's that good. All right. Well, I need to <laughs> I need to know what you're doing. Thank you for jumping on. Mary, you've got a really interesting story in starting Sales BQ, what your company does and, and how it, it helps sales organizations to advance. Tell us about how you got into the business and, and what you're doing at SalesBQ. Yeah. Do you want to hear the backstory? Like my crazy fun years that led to being a number one B2B rep that inspired this, or you just want to hear the business story? Oh, start wherever you want. I mean, it all, it all goes into what you're doing now. Okay, perfect. My story is a fun one. I started at age 22 with a Fortune 1000 payroll and HR company. I had never sold anything. I had never worked in a professional corporate environment. I didn't have a college degree. I had some things going for me. It doesn't sound like that's a very attractive list there, but I had a lot of potential. And there was a sales manager. He happened to be the number one sales manager in the country that was looking at adding an administrative professional to the sales team to support the sales people. And it was a $13 an hour role. I interviewed for it. I don't know. He saw something in me (laughs) and said, I think he just wanted to take a chance on somebody with a lot of energy who wanted to turn around their life. And that was me. Two years, I got to support a mid-market sales team of eight salespeople. And I knew very early on in that I wanted to get into sales. I fell in love with the profession, seeing how this team worked, also seeing their commission reports. It was a lot of fun filing those every month. Some of them would have a month of earnings that was more than my entire year's salary. And I thought, what do I have to do to be on this team? I asked him that question. I fast-tracked two years of education and taking Dale Carnegie sales training courses. I also loved listening to Brian Tracy's Psychology of Selling on an 11 cassette tape disc. This was back in 2006. (laughs) I was (laughs) driving a Dodge Durango that I was able to put a tape into and turn it over to the other side. But ultimately, two-year fast track, I was in the field with the team, shadowing. I knew I wanted to do this. They put me on the mid-market team. I became the number one rep in 30 days. I crushed people in the rankings. And my first year, my quota was 150,000. I sold 758,000, which was more than number two and three combined. I went into my second year. They cut my territory in half. They doubled my quota. They asked me to train reps and managers across the country. I said yes with the biggest smile on my face. I got to venture into that second year journey. I finished number one again. I had 
sold 850,000 that year. And I got to train other reps and managers and I loved it. But I decided at that point, I wanted to spread my wings, do something a little bit bigger. I transitioned out of the company and took an equity position with a smaller organization that did back office outsourcing. I stepped in as VP of sales and marketing and I quadrupled the company's revenue with a small team in seven months. And that was the first time I really got to write a playbook and build infrastructure. And it was very scary. I was young. I was 27. I really had never had a responsibility like that, but was able to do it. And I fell in love with that type of work. And I started my first consulting firm called Butterfly Creative. I did that for three years. I helped 36 startups and entrepreneurs build a foundation that they needed to create a high growth company. And then after that, I kind of become a starving entrepreneur. At first, Sabbath entrepreneurship, I didn't know how to praise my services. I didn't know how to hire and delegate. I reached burnout. I wasn't super profitable. And I met my now husband, wanted to get married, buy a house and have a baby. So I went back to the payroll company for three years, sold millions, crushed a lot of the competition and my quota. And then my entrepreneurial wings spread again and sales BQ was born. This time I just realized sales is a God-given talent for me. It's a, it feels very natural. I love it. I'm crazy about it. I still running a company. I handle all the business development for sales BQ and it's just the high point of my day. Being in the sales conversation gets me so jazzed up. It's all I want to do with my life is sell things. And so now we have an organization We've advanced a little to cover all facets of the revenue function. So we go on contract directly working for CEOs. Their companies might range somewhere between five and 50 million, but we go on and we assume the entire revenue function from start to finish. So that could be seen maybe as a fractional CRO type role, but we rewrite the entire revenue strategy as one single strategy, not here's your marketing strategy, here's your sales strategy, here's customer success. We build it as one and we create one revenue plan. We build all the infrastructure systems processes. We develop the current team. We recruit for increase in headcount or replace non-performers and we execute the plan. We typically work for a company for 12 to 18 months and get them to a point of new, very impressive growth that they're excited to continue on that path. So this is, I got a bunch of questions. So on the, what you're doing now they come to you with all these different strategies and different people and different systems. And, you know, I, I kind of envision this whole spaghetti thing of marketing and sales and customer service, right? Because somehow they got to 5 million to 50 million without you. So they come to you with all this stuff. And how do you unravel this big mess that you present? Yes, it's or as you if you work here. Away? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> do you just say, look, throw it away. I'm, I'm going to just redo this whole thing for you. No, to your point, it's definitely not a rip and replace. To your point, they got to 5 million or 10, 15, 20, whatever they are, 50 million. They got there somehow, right? So they're not completely broken. With that, there's something great that they've done. Typically, there could be word of mouth is a great way to grow for companies out of the gate, but how long is that sustainable unless you're making it a purposeful strategy and not reactive? You'll also find that you could have somebody who is very relationship oriented, somebody that landed a big account, somebody that brings a book of business. You know, some things are circumstantial. Every client is different. When we go in there, the only way we can be successful in building a plan is to learn and understand how they got to that point. It's also important for us to 
identify what they may have tried in the past to fix the revenue problem that didn't work because we also don't want to bring forth an idea that they've already tried and exhausted and it's not viable for them. There's a ton of research that goes into our very first week of the engagement. Not only do sometimes we have to learn a whole new industry because we are industry agnostic. Sometimes we are learning an all new product or service we may have never seen before or, or dealt with. But not only are we learning that, we're learning the entire company. We're learning all the strategy, all the infrastructure, all the ins and outs, everything they've done in the past, where they want to go. Within a week, we have a gap analysis. And that gap analysis, before we go create any deliverables or come up with, hey, here's your plan moving forward, we use it to gain alignment. And that's where the leadership team and any of the key stakeholders, we will all sit down and we go through it. And then we are validated on our ideas before we ever do anything. And the other key to success is getting buy-in from the team. So we've had opposition. Sometimes people don't love when you have a third party coming in and you think, is my job at risk? Are they going to value and listen to me? One thing that happened to me when I was back selling for the payroll company, I was a number one rep. I mean, I was selling millions in revenue for the company and they brought in a third party consultant that built a sales playbook. Like, great. Have you ever sold what we sell? Have you ever competed against the people that we compete against with our product set? Have you ever worked with this type of buyer? Have you done anything that resembles what we do for a living? And you're writing us a playbook. <laughs> like, who are you? How can you even come up with recommendations? And so this is something that I'm very sensitive to because as a top performer, in my last couple of years with the payroll company, they put me on this elite team. They took 12 of the top 25 reps and put us in a new division to sell in the up market. That's what we called it. And my payroll company that I sold for had never sold in that market before. I mean, there had been some clients that had come through the pipeline but or inbound referral, whatnot, but never proactively worked with that market. And we were all top performers and we all had a very established track record and history about how we went about the role. And when this standardized playbook came and was put in front of 12 of the company's top performers, we all looked at each other and just laughed. It's like, why would you take somebody that has year over year repeated success, even though the 12 of us all sold wildly different? You can't put a standardized playbook like that in front. And so we're very sensitive to that. And so I always put myself in the rep shoes that we get to go work with is I'm not here to rip and replace. I'm not here to change anything that's working well for you. In fact, it's our responsibility to learn it and to ensure that what you are doing that's great is preserved and we're just going to find the gaps and make it 10 times better. Got it. Okay. So, so that's the first thing I would wonder is, is, is there like a CMO or a VP of sales who are supposed to be doing this, right, for the company. And then you're coming in and as that third party, I would think that there would be some resistance and some politics, right? When you oh, come yeah. in. I mean, every time. But that's why we sell directly to CEOs. And I, I want to just make that some advice too for your listeners. When you're identifying your ICP, your ideal client profile, who is your buyer? So many sales organizations will take a meeting with whoever they can get a meeting with. And this really came around full circle for me because you're selling in B2B, mid-market, payroll, HR, accounting type sales. The CFO or CEO makes the decision. But for years, the strategy was to get the meeting with the payroll coordinator or functionary or a head of HR or somebody that was more in an end user role. And you wonder why the close rate is industry standard 33%. And you take that same conversation to how many other companies you can sell to, 
where there are other people that are a part of the process, but they're not the end-all, be-all decision maker. And how much does their influence, they may be telling you one thing, but the meeting that happens after your meeting, the one that you're not a part of, the one that, that's in their organization that you're not there for, are they squashing it? Do they feel threatened in their job? Do they feel like they might be exposed because what you're selling to them, a product or service is actually part of their job requirement and something they already should have put forth. If you and your great discovery uncovered with an end user or influencer that there are gaping holes, will that be will that person who's responsible for it that you're actually selling to be perceived negatively? May they, they may block you from going to the executive team. And so when you look at it from that respect, we've had VPs of sales, we've had VPs of marketing, we've had sales managers reach out to us. I want to learn about your service. And I know right away, I will not close this deal. And I don't even spend time on it. What I will do is do it as a fact finding and take a lot of notes and really help them understand why I don't think it's a good fit unless they're willing to do fill in the blank, which is the next meeting is me one-on-one -on -one with the CEO because I need to hear their side of the story. And then the chances that they're actually going to let me do that are very low. Thing is we don't sell to that decision maker. And so to your, or to that level. So to your point, because we work with the CEO, they have the end-all be-all. It is a CEO-sponsored initiative. And so with it coming from the top down, I do require it as a step of the business development process that we meet with executives. I want them to stay there. I want them to be valued. I want them to be respected and heard. I want to find out what they don't have bandwidth for or capacity or a gap in their own knowledge and skill set because my team can supplement that and we can actually turn them into rock stars. And then this really secures their longevity moving forward. But I have to earn that trust with them. And I typically earn that in a stronger fashion when it's an, a CEO or an executive sponsored project that I'm able to put forth because they realize, well, my CEO is serious about this. So I better get on the bandwagon. And then we have remarkable results with them. And when we've turned executives at that level and that VP level into, I use the term rock stars, but just into a staple for the organization that the CEO is willing to continue to invest in and they earn more money and they do greater things and, and they're just there for a longer period of time, which, which we're excited about. That makes perfect sense because, you know, one of my mentors was very open to using, you know, third parties and he was really focused on the results that he was trying to get mm -hmm. versus the ego that comes in, in that if I bring in somebody to help me, it's, it's me admitting that I don't know how to do my job or something like that. Right. And, and it's like so a CEO, they're only, I mean, they're really focused on the results and the health of the company versus like, you know, they have to, they have to get help from people. Their whole job is getting help from people, right? To get the result of the company. So you work with them and then you bring up everybody to that level of focusing on results, right? Absolutely. And look, I'm one of those people. I never wanted help from anybody. And that's a terrible situation to be in. I became a number one rep when I was 24 years old. How inclined am I to listen to anybody? And I didn't just win by a dollar. I won by hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. in the rankings. It wasn't even close. For years, I lost out on transformative development because I didn't have the ears. I didn't have the heart to open up to anybody else giving me advice or feedback. And that's a terrible way to go through life. I am so fortunate that that has shifted in me because even when I started off as 
a CEO the second time around with SalesBQ, I felt like I knew what I was doing and I had all the answers and I was head down and growing this company and scaling it rapidly, providing remarkable results to our clients. Well, then the pandemic hit and all of a sudden we lost a handful of clients, my $1.2 million pipeline of business that was slated to close within the upcoming quarter was gone. I was now left with a holy crap moment. Everything that I sacrificed for and built in two and a half years literally came down in three days. And I was upside down on my PL for the first time. We've been profitable since day one. So that was a shock to the system. And I cried. I mean, I just felt like, what did I do wrong? Well, guess what? A pandemic shutdown is a really great time because you all of a sudden have extra time in your day <laughs> to sit back and analyze and look at it. And I was forced to, for the first time, look at what I had built and take a lot of my own advice. And within a week, I consulted six different business advisors, so coaches, other executives, whatnot, people that I highly value and trust. And ran through different models and scenarios and looked back at why certain things fell apart and what I could have done differently. Holy smokes, within just a week or two, I realized I made so many of the same mistakes. Had I been willing to have an open mind or have the ears to hear, I could have had great mentorship during this process, potentially avoided a lot of what happened when the shutdown happened. But, you know, ultimately I'm just so thankful that it did. And my perspective shifted yet again. It's just every one of us as human beings, we don't know everything. I don't care how talented and smart and proven you are in your track record. There's always more for us to learn and it's a lot more fun to win. And so if it's really just opening up ourselves to saying maybe a coach or a mentor or some development or a class or Therapist. reading a book or whatnot, right? Like, invest in yourself. There's more to learn and it's pretty cool if you could be even better than you are today. 100%. And so I got a lot of questions. So, you know, the fact of being a CEO is you're the top salesperson, you're you're you know, you're dynamic, you have the most energy, you have the most passion, right? And you founded the company. So in this crisis, have you been able to kind of get that help and 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 start to distribute you know, some of the, some of the duties to people to help you to grow, you know, through the crisis, you know, you've been the top performer, you know, your whole career, and now you have to, you know, distribute some of the responsibility to some extent, right? Yes. Yes. And I'm extremely fortunate for the team that we have. I, when the pandemic shutdown first occurred and I was so shaken I'm a woman of faith. So for me, relying on scripture and jumping into the word is very helpful for me to get centered. And I came across some scripture that talked about not growing weary and doing good for in time you'll reap a harvest. And that spoke to me strongly. And so I, I came back to my team in the next team meeting and I said, we have some decisions to make right now because we don't have a lot of options. <laughs> My choice is to keep this company afloat. And the way that we do that is we have to do remarkable work. That's it. If our value is so extreme to the client, they'll make a hundred other cuts before they cut us. So take a look at your current client load. Take a look at the work that you're doing and ask yourself, is this remarkable 
or am I checking boxes? Is there more that I could be doing on this? Am I lacking in any way? Is my value in question in any way, shape, or form? And remember, perception is reality. They may think they're doing great work. Does the CEO, does the executive team, do the people that we manage and lead, are they perceiving it the same way or not? Because that is their reality, and that's what they'll use to make the decision. So as a team, we were able to sit down and create priorities of doing remarkable work and ensuring that we were firing on all cylinders and that our value was undeniable. And so in that moment, yes, it took me spreading that encouragement and wisdom and energy (laughs) and that passion that doesn't turn off. I hear that feedback consistently and breathing that life into my team during a very uncertain time. A lot of my team members were fearful. Are we going to have salary cuts? Are we going to have layoffs? Many of them, their spouses and significant others were either losing jobs or their salaries were getting cut. There was a lot of fear. It's like we can't, nothing good comes from a place of fear. We can't create something remarkable if our hearts and minds aren't aligned and committed to doing remarkable work. It doesn't work that way. So we've got to get aligned as a team and we need to do that. And during that time, I also relied on the team to give me very, very, very candid feedback what they may not have felt comfortable telling me before, especially because when I'm running a million miles a minute, I'm known to be very back-to-back in my calendar. I may not feel as accessible as I should be as an executive or leader. And so I had a lot of extra time in my calendar. (laughs) And I made sure the team knew this is the time for us to communicate. This is the time for me to see the unseen that I don't know that's happening. This is the time for you to report to me from the field what we're doing in our company that's not as good as it could be or what we need to be adding and doing. And so to answer your question, yes, we used the time for me to use my own team as the feedback loop to understand where our gaps were and how to correct them. And I'm so fortunate for the people that are on this team. And together, we we came up with the solution. And I just had one of my VPs before our, our interview today. I had him show me screenshots from one of the teams that he coaches. We were brought in initially to just create a BDR team. And we were brought in to create this team to work in conjunction with one inside salesperson they had and also grow that and have this fit right in between marketing and then their account executive team. What we found throughout that time is the value we created was so strong that they actually asked us in the middle of a pandemic to increase our scope, take over the entire sales organization and to do all this work. And it couldn't have been time better because we looked at the pipeline. We looked at pipeline created from when we came in until today and then closed business. In the middle of a pandemic, they had record breaking months. And to see this was the greatest validation. But there was a shift that we did during this time in order to get those results. And I'm, and I'm pleased to say that every one of our clients that stuck with us, they grew the revenue during the pandemic, which is really remarkable. So yeah, sometimes it just takes talking to your own internal people and getting the feedback loop. I think back to when I was selling payroll, I wish management had asked us more questions and they wanted more feedback from the field because I feel like so many decisions that affect people that are in the field and frontline and doing the work come from executive leadership. The last time they ever sold anything if they've ever sold anything and they're dictating from the top down how it should be. And I think feedback from the field up is the way to get the right answer. The rear echelon. And so going from a high performing individual contributor to now having to manage people, 
you know, and try to get them. Is it ever frustrating to that? Because, you know, the average, there's like a bell curve, right? Of people that, that work for you. There's, there's a, I mean, there, you know, there's a, B, C, D or whatever, however you want to say it. Does it frustrate? I mean, does it, does it ever like frustrate you that like, why can't everybody be like me, you know, type of thing? How do you deal with that? Yeah. Early on, I would say that that was difficult for me and I didn't understand why others couldn't be like me. And I held it you against want everybody people. To be like, you know, you want everyone to be at a high level of performance. You yes. Know? Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, you want them to be. And because it's my reality and it's my day to day, I didn't know how to have empathy for people that couldn't figure it out quickly and couldn't perform at this level and excel at this level. I'm like, well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Isn't this how people do it? Which I Isn't say that and like this. Correct. But I didn't know. And it was a very ignorant stance to take. And what I found is we all have our unique God-given talents. We're all created in a way to have superhuman talents that we're that we, everyone is different and everyone has those. And if you can leverage what they are for each person, then you can build something pretty tremendously valuable to others. Right. And so for me, I listened to Gary V had one of his short little five minute videos or, you know, that he puts out on LinkedIn and I was watching it and he had this theory about those executives, those people, those high performers that are just naturally built this way that have that unending desire, grit, passion, energy to just get it done, high figure it out factor. They make things happen. They can build things on the spot. You know, those people, they're few and far between. It's a talent that they have. Now they also are lacking in several other talents, FYI, that other people have, which is why having a well-rounded team is so important. But with that, he referred to them as 100s. Okay. So if you fit that profile, you're a 100. So now you want to grow your team. Okay. Mr. Powerhouse 100 or Mrs. 100. You have this expectation because you're 100 that everyone else can operate at this level, but the truth is they can't. And so if you hire somebody thinking that they can also be a 100 like you, you'll be let down all the time. But if you acknowledge that some people on their best day might be 75 of what you are, but on the average operate at a 50, could you not build the role where they can excel on most day to day at about a 50 of you and then have these really remarkable moments where they're jumping up to a 75 because hundreds run companies, hundreds are the executives, they are the leaders, they are that, that profile I was describing. And it's okay that not everybody is that way, but to cherish into accept and honor people that are the 50s and 75s because you need them. <laughs> you need them on your team. You need them to be specialists in areas. So you might be a jack of all trades, an executive that 100 can do a lot of things. That's not realistic to expect that of other people. And so the exercise that I went through to build this beautiful team that we have is even though I would refer to myself as that 100 profile, there are a lot of things I'm not good at and or where I lack and I have weaknesses or I prefer, there's certain types of work I prefer not to do if I give given the choice. And so to round out my team, those people feel like hundreds to me, even though it might be a fraction of what I am. They are, they, to me, they are a 100 because they do work. I either cannot do or do not want to do, or do not have the capacity to do. And because they do that, our team is very, is very rich, but that's just hiring advice I would have for anyone building out a team is to go for the compliment, not for replication of who you are. And was it hard to ask for that candid feedback and you know, did you get any that 
you didn't want to hear or <laughs> you were just like, oh, I, I know that I do that, but now somebody else knows type of thing. I mean, w- what was that experience like? It's humbling, but I, I just tweeted the other day <laughs> a tweet about this saying, how do you give somebody the message that they've asked for, but they don't have ears to hear it? So even when people ask for feedback and they need to hear the message and they've asked for the message, but they don't have the ears to hear it, that's a real thing. And I've been that way for a long time in my life. And so in those moments when I really do want to seek feedback, I take full advantage of it. And when I was sitting on the floor of my living room crying, sitting there with my beautiful three-year-old son playing trains and my husband playing trains with us too. And I look at the two of them three days in this, into this pandemic and my world comes crashing down. I look at the two most beautiful people in my life that I love so much. And I know that I missed out on so much of my son's early years of his life because I was growing and scaling a company that was my second baby to him. And I had hundred hour work weeks and I gave everything for that. And I looked at how quickly things can be torn down and what are we really living for? And although I'm very proud of the company I built and I love the people that I have working with me, my family is more important. And I realized my family has taken second place for a very long time. And I made a commitment in that moment that I can't be pre-COVID ever again. I can't run that company I had before because that wasn't sustainable. It wasn't healthy. We were growing too fast. We had broken systems or lack thereof. And I said, we can't do it. And so I knew, David, the only way I was going to be able to have something different than what I had before is I had to do something different, right? That's the opposite definition of insanity. You want different results and you have to do something different. And something I didn't do frequently was ask for that feedback. And so in that moment, I didn't feel like I had a plan B. I had a commitment in my heart that I was going to rebuild this company to where I could really cherish my family and be a wife and a mom and put them first, but also continue to have a wildly successful company that fueled me, you know, just gave me, gave me an outlet for my purpose and passion, but I had to do it the right way. Well, the only way I could do that was ask for the feedback. So whether I wanted to hear it or not, I needed to hear it in that moment. I knew the only way I could rebuild in a way that was going to get me what I ultimately wanted was to listen. And so for me specifically, it wasn't hard to hear that in the moment. I was just really thankful for it. Yeah. You're open to it. So powerful. It's funny because with your kids and you know, maybe your spouse, I don't know, but you're, you're going through all this stuff in your head and you're trying to figure all this stuff out. And then you walk out and, and they're like, how you doing? You're like, fine. You know, let's play trains. You know, (laughs) (laughs) they have no idea, you know, any of this. And it's kind of good in a way, right? Because for a minute you could just, okay, let's play trains. Like, right. Yes. It is a nice little escape, but it is hard, but I made the commitment. So here's the example, right? I mean, business is picked back up. We are so fortunate that people are hearing and recognizing, acknowledging our value. Something that's really interesting is our pipeline right now is about 75% has come from the referrals from the nine clients that stuck with us through the pandemic and we grew all their revenue. So guess who's referring (laughs) the nine clients and their referrals are incredible. The words coming out of their mouths and it's endearing and it's just such a validation to why we're doing what we do. But now I have a huge pipeline and the work is mounting up, but I made that commitment to my family. And so to your point, the computer gets shut down and the phone is off. 
when I pick up my son from preschool, it's him and it's him and it's us and it's our time. It's not our time while I'm on my phone during dinner and answering emails. And it's a commitment that when my son says, mommy, will you lay with me? Even though I had two proposals to get out last night, the work can get done, but I can't always get that time back to lay down with my son, to put him to bed. And I made the decision and you know what? Everything still got done. And I had that time. It's just decisions 100%. that we make in the moment. Probably better for the business because it's like, if you're, I just, I hear this a lot. Like if you're this super high performing individual contributor that goes to start a business, you're doing so great on all the stuff. It ends up taking up all your time and you're a bottleneck in a lot of ways, right? Because it's like the business can't function as well until you start to give up the stuff that you like, you know, and, and, and hold other people responsible and probably ends up giving you more time for your family if you set up good systems, you know, to run the business. So it's, it's interesting to hear it. You know, it seems like this horrible thing that we've been going through has kind of forced you to think about it in, in a way. Very much so. And I've written multiple blogs and posts and just the pandemic saved my life. It gave me back to my family. It rebuilt my business in a profitable, sustainable way. It got me centered on my purpose in this world. It reconnected me stronger with my faith. It's interesting. And just in those moments of sheer panic and feeling like everything comes crashing down, it's just a reminder and a lesson that this is a short blip in our life of eternity while we're on earth. And these things, really, the things of this world, like aren't everything that matter. And to just take a deep breath, I think it's been a long time since I had taken a deep breath and taken a break for a minute to just stop. And the, the pandemic, I know I've seen some posts calling it the global reset. And I believe that even though many people are still experiencing hardship or experienced loss from someone, a family member, a loved one getting sick, there's a lot of heartache, but I do believe that we will come out stronger on the other end of this. And it is all about perspective and your attitude about it. hundred percent. I mean, it's funny because all I got out of it was gaining 10 pounds of blubber, but I'm going to, I'm inspired, Mary. I am inspired from this conversation. <laughs> the, no, but I a hundred percent agree. I mean, it does, it does really, it has kicked people's butts. And sometimes that's exactly what we need, you know? So we do, we do. Yeah. Well, this is so great. Okay. So folks, I'm a CEO. I, I want to hire you. I'm going to give you this big mess of all these different things and have you make it better. <laughs> How do people get in touch with you if they're interested in this? Because it seems amazing, especially for CEOs. It is amazing. Thank you for that. For CEOs, for certain, we've seen CEOs cry, both men and women with the work that we do, because as an executive, this is your baby. This is your company. This is everything that we just talked about. I know how passionate I am about my company. I know how passionate you are about yours. And revenue is a challenge. Revenue growth, consistent, predictable, sustainable revenue growth, even as your buyer shifts and changes and the way people buy shifts and changes and introduction of completely new sales teams like SDRs and sales development. What is that? Why do I need an SDR? How do you equip them for success? Do you just hire out of college? Do they know what they're doing? I mean, 
the CEO shouldn't be drowning and trying to figure out all of that. There are people out there, whether it's us or another firm like us, that can really take this off of your plate and help you get to those dreams that you are pursuing right now. And it's sometimes at great sacrifice. And so if that's resonating with anyone and you want to have that conversation, we would love to meet you. I do handle all the business development as a reference for the company. So you're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn and Mary Grothy. It's G-R-O-T-H-E. You can also find us at salesbq.com. And if you want to personally follow me, I have my Instagram is also Mary Grothy and my Twitter, not to confuse anyone, is Mary L. Grothy because some other Mary Grothy took my handle. I don't know what to do about that. I'm a little mad. That's okay. Now, you're also going to promise to take the business development off your plate, right? And give it to someone who's an A player at your company? (laughs) You know, maybe eventually, but I actually get extreme enjoyment out of it. And it has not been a bottleneck. We actually have a wait list right now for clients. So we're very fortunate. We're very, very fortunate. I'm going to (laughs) keep it until I feel like it's a bottleneck, but I love it so much. I think what I'll have to do is just hire someone to sell next to me, but I don't think I can get rid of it. (laughs) All right. We'll check in with you in a year and see, but Mary, thank you. So much for coming and sharing your wisdom. And, you know, there's so many tips here that people can take from this. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.